Welcome to the Manmukti Podcast, where we speak up about South Asian mental health. In this episode, an anonymous guest shares his story of depression, alcoholism, and the path of recovery from a disease that taught him the power of identity and where to find it. We hope you listen, share, and speak up. Hey guys, uh, welcome and thanks for joining us again. I want to let my uh, guest this week say some stuff about himself uh, and introduce his topic. Hi there, um, I'm one of Anand's classmates and uh, he's a very, very good friend of mine and I agreed to um, do this recording with him in the hope that this might help somebody out there who really needs uh, who really needs a hand, really needs to have someone speak for them. So I hope this reaches the person that needs it. Yeah, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of the point with this podcast is uh, that so many issues aren't spoken about and uh, they're very common. So people who end up with very common things end up feeling alone. And so I really commend my guest's bravery uh, in talking about this. So we'll get right to it. So uh, my guest is here to talk about uh, two things, mainly depression and about alcohol. And, you know, as you can predict, they're inextricably linked in a lot of stories. So I want to ask my guest how old uh, he was when he first noticed depression and what it looked like for him, because it can be different. Honestly, I I really noticed that things started to get a little different when I was maybe 12. Um you know, I always had I always had issues socializing. I always had issues getting along with with people around me. And then I really noticed as soon as, really as soon as puberty kind of kicked in, um, I was just I was just a lot more angry all the time. But after a while, it kind of kind of changed into just more more of a numb feeling um, around the time I was maybe fourteen, fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, was that like high school? Uh, it was at, yeah, actually uh, it was at the uh, beginning of high school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some people manage to navigate that time really well, but uh, it can be hard if you don't. And I want to, you know, I want to see if your family helped with that and kind of what role they played in the whole process. Well, my family, my my family is is actually very very different from most South Asian families. I'm um, I'm lucky in that I have one parent who was actually born in the West. So she, my mom actually she's um, she's always been able to understand. A lot of the things that, that I've been through. Uh, in addition to, to that, she actually has several family members who have suffered from depression, and my sister also suffers from depression. So it's not like I was in an environment that was completely cold and un, and you know not understanding, which I feel like a lot of South Asians may have to struggle with. Um, my my father, on the other hand, is very very traditional, um, and it was very difficult for him to come to terms with my sister's diagnosis a few years before mine. Um, but you know, as as time as time went on, he eventually understood that this isn't um, necessarily um, weakness or or any of the, the the standard things that most conservative Indian parents think it is. He he understood mm-hmm. that it was just just like being sick, mm-hmm. and that we weren't necessarily broken, or that we weren't evil, or that we didn't quote unquote deserve it. Yeah, as some you know some people from a Hindu background might believe. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he came to terms with it, and he, he's he's actually he's actually been fantastic in the past few years. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, what was that transition like from the time when he didn't get it to when he did get it? What kind of moved him? Did you do anything that helped? Kind of help, helped him understand? 
honestly, it was really my sister who who did a lot of the legwork um, on her end uh, because older siblings do a lot of that for younger siblings. They they really do. <laughs> um, she. Uh, it was interesting because she she actually had so she and I actually both went through a really really tough childhood not not specifically because of our parents but mainly because of everyone else around us mm-hmm. and so for a very very long time my, my dad was kind of in a fog about what was you know who was really on his side and who really cared about him and I think I think as soon I think as soon as he saw my sister because my sister first had her issues when she was about 16 um I, I think he realized you know wow this something is not right here mm-hmm. someone who's always been you know the rock in our family is you know she's she's crumbling mm-hmm. and i think that was that was what started his his process i think as soon as he realized that um i had the same symptoms that my sister had mm-hmm. it really it really changed him and how much older is your sister than you my sister's uh, six years older than i am so that must have been around the same time because you said she was 16 and you were 12 Ish, yeah. Um, so uh, when we were sixteen, we had a we had a death in the family that really affected um, my sister. Uh-huh. Um, and for me, I I think it it took me a few years to really understand what was going on. But mine was sort of um, I'd say it was it, it was kind of at the same time. But it, but really, a, a lot of my things sort of stemmed from frankly, being a hormonal teenager um, and not really ever being able to find that identity that every teenager looks for. Mm -hmm. So it does sound like your sister took, um, took a huge turn. And then that kind of showed your family, or at least your father, that something outside was at play here, not Mm -hmm. something that was within her control. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, because who would elect to to make to make that change in their personality? Right, um, and I think really it's a, it's a testament to how much my dad cares. Yeah, about about my sister and myself. Yeah, uh, that he was willing to completely change his mindset yeah. on, frankly, on parenting because he really was a very different parent before before you know two thousand two thousand one. Yeah, so. What uh, what did your mother do in all this? What, what role did she play? Frankly, my my mom was uh, it's difficult to say. So my mom was was always understanding. It was it was it was kind of difficult for her because you know being from the West, she kind of has to play the same game that all of us have to play, mm-hmm. um, trying to balance being traditional and trying to balance being you know Western, um, and then. It was it was it was a very difficult position for her, because of course you know an Indian wife you know you have to support your husband, mm-hmm. but at the same time a mother in in any culture mm-hmm. um, is you know bound to to I mean she's she's able to empathize with her with her children more than anyone else right yeah um, and so I think I think while my my father had an internal battle mm-hmm. um in regard to to learning about something that was completely completely new to him mm-hmm. my mom was bound by other factors right so yeah it was it was uh, it was a very it was a big transition for her as well right. in, especially in, in regard to i guess the the gender roles um yeah. inherent within indian society yeah yeah it sounds like 
yeah, you know, and this is I think common in Indian families is my, my parents have the same kind of a dynamic I think is that my father's uh, one of his biggest tasks in life I think observing him as a young adult now has been in trying to hold his identity together in his dueling sense of uh, commitment to different parts of his life right and then my mom has been in trying to hold her family together kind of thing you exactly know? so like uh, while I go in search of my identities my brother goes in search of his identities and my dad's doing his thing my mom's the one uh, whatsapping us and making sure we're all eating our food exactly you know? <laughs> yeah um, sort of the fixed point that everyone rotates around yeah almost and uh you know, I know your mom. Your mom is even making sure I'm eating. So, yeah. uh, I, I, so I totally see that. One thing I was curious about is that, uh, you know, in, in med school, we learned that depression looks different uh, in the elderly, mm-hmm. for example. Um, they might be less forthcoming about their symptoms. They might kind of talk about them as if they're more corporal symptoms rather than psychological symptoms. Um, I wonder if there's, if in your mind, depression looks different in South Asian people uh, and what, you know, the difference might be young South Asian people versus older ones and kind of uh, what you've observed about that. Because you've seen, it sounds like, many uh, examples of depression in your family. I have, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the the real shame is with depression in the South Asian community, a lot of it is just not necessarily triggered by, but is, you know... Um, uh, is definitely subject to the fact that a lot of us just struggle with identity. Um, I think in regard in regard to in regard to my struggle, you know, it was it was it was mainly just because I, I was never able to, I, I guess, do the balancing act that my that my mother was able to do. I, I was never able to do the balancing act that my sister was able to do, um, and so for me, my my depression stemmed from a total lack of understanding of who I was, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, say, my sister, who had to deal with uh, grief, uh, who was unable to deal with grief. Mm-hmm. So I think while while depression is multifaceted um, in, in different cultures, I feel like it is equally as complicated in South Asian communities. Right. The, the difference, though, is in the South Asian community... A lot of people don't talk about their emotions. They don't mm-hmm. talk about their feelings, and I feel like that um, the nagging thought, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 sort of um, the burrowing parasite of yeah. depression, yeah. it just festers and festers yeah. and festers. Right. Um, it's been such a long time not being attended to, not being treated, that you know, uh, it, it becomes far more difficult later on to actually treat depression. Right. So that's that's really the main difference is the fact that we as a society struggle to actually talk about our feelings. Right. And yet in our art, in our film, it's almost front and center. Absolutely. And and that's the thing about about Bollywood. Yeah. It's escapism. It's it's hyper emotional. It's it's almost histrionic. Yeah. So yeah, that's how I just find that so awkward to watch a, a film with my family, uh, which is so forthcoming and then with the film, the credits roll, and then we're not that family. 
Exactly. In so many ways we are, in so many ways we aren't. Mm-hmm. The first entire first half, yeah, it's our family. The second half never happens. There's no resolution. That's There's kind no of. Catharsis. I feel like that's why we watch the film is Absolutely. to almost vicariously have that talk with Amitabh Bachchan that we would have. Exactly. You know, and tell him that we love the girl from the street. Yeah. You know? And to have Amitabh Bachchan realize that oh my goodness, love is real. Yeah. And to have him agree. And it's all about loving your family or whatever. Karen Absolutely. Johar. Karen Johar, it was. Uh, Gurren Johar was, was formative in setting up expectations that uh, mm-hmm. uh, that Indian families can never live up to. <laughs> <laughs> um, next thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, about alcoholism. So, you know, I know you and I know that you uh, have succeeded in going completely free of alcohol for a long time. You want to tell the audience how long you've been going? Um, in, uh, in about a month's time, I will have been sober for seven years. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, some people are listening to us are drinking right now. So just imagine how hard it must have been for someone to do that at the, you know, tender age of 25, 26. Yeah. 26. 26, right? almost 27. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what uh, kind of really surprises me about uh, alcoholism, uh, or at least compels me about it, is how hard it is to notice that it's happening. And... Uh, a lot you hear that from not only patients, but also when you go to an AA meeting, you hear that from people. Uh, you hear that from family members of people who are going through alcoholism, and I hear it from you. So tell people kind of what it was like for you to realize you had a problem. Well, <laughs> I didn't realize I had a problem. That's mm-hmm. that's why I became an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> right. It's alcohol was a solution as opposed to a problem for mm-hmm. a very long time, and it was. It was the night before I chose to get sober mm-hmm. that led me to um, led me to this journey of sobriety. So um, I, I think it, it took it took someone else's perspective for me to finally understand, and that was that was of course my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, she she never had to deal with addiction issues on um, uh, you know through her experience, but I think looking at looking at the or rather listening to the way that my sister sounded when I told her what had happened um you know I got this feeling that that she finally realized I wasn't the person that she'd always thought I was mm-hmm. and that that kind of broke me I'm yeah. not gonna lie it, it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult situation to oh gosh uh to not live up to the expectations of someone you value. Yeah. Granted, we are South Asian, so <laughs> <laughs> I, that's never really going to happen in a yeah. lot of cases. Yeah. So, um, but I think that what's different for you is that it was your sister, exactly. Which is she? She was someone, and I know her too. She's not someone who will uh, kind of exact upon you things that she wants you to do. It's more that she knows who you are. Exactly. And then that didn't fit her picture of who you are, not who you ought to be. Exactly. Yeah. I guess that's a better way of putting it. She, uh, yeah, she's always she's always thought very very highly of me and has always believed in in me. I mean, essentially, you know, when we were kids, she was essentially my mom. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> to 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 disappoint your mom yeah. <laughs> is uh, well. It's ta- it's tantamount, or rather, it's it's uh, it's tantamount to to actual utter failure. Um, it was it was heartbreaking, and I think um, I think seeing that in her, 
saying that she really knew that I was that I was better than what I had chosen to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was the impetus. That was that was the the driving force behind why I chose to get sober. So the night that you decided to quit drinking uh, was a very formative night for you, obviously. Can you talk about that night in as much detail as you feel comfortable? Sure. Um, so that was, gosh, that was a terrible night. Uh, it was Halloween. Uh, I'd, I'd gone to a, a party with some people in an organization that I was part of, um, and my ex uh, was at that party. Um, and I was not in a good state of mind. I was, I think we were two weeks out of the breakup. And I was not in a good place at all. Um, and I had, at that point, my, my drinking, really for that for that month that we were having issues and those two weeks where, where we'd been apart, those six weeks, I think I drank more than I, than I had in probably the previous year. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always drunk. Um, I'd go to class drunk, you know, mm-hmm. I'd wake up and I'd drink. It was, it was bad. It was yeah. really bad. Um, so, you know, I end up going to that party thinking, oh, there's, there's going to be booze there. You know, I'm not going to waste any, you know, I'll, I'll be able to feel great. I'll be able to see people that I think are fun and interesting and it doesn't matter if she's there. I'm mm-hmm. going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is I get to that party and I see her with another guy already and, you know, being... Being 20 years old, mm-hmm. uh, seeing something like that, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't equipped with the the fortitude to be able to handle something like that. Right. Um, and I went off the deep end. I honestly only remember maybe five minutes after I saw them together, um, and then I woke up. In a hospital, I was uh, in an observation unit. I had a, uh, I was cuffed to the bed, and I had a cop standing next to me. Um, you had a cop standing next. to I you? had a cop standing next to me. Yeah, um, really, really nice guy. <laughs> Super understanding. You know, uh, just a shout out to the call station police department. Uh, really, really fantastic guys. Um, and you know, he. He didn't say much, but he was just there, and I feel like that was that was comforting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was terrifying, of course, because you know, relatively speaking, I'd been an upstanding citizen, yeah, <laughs> and so to be in such close proximity with a police officer and was... have a handcuff on your wrist, exactly, yeah. Uh, I the, immediately the first thing I thought was, oh god, did I kill someone? Yeah, um, it's like the beginning of that book by Kafka where he wakes up as a. Uh, and a cockroach. Yes, uh, exactly. Um, and so it was. It was a. It was definitely a wonderful metamor- metamorphosis moment for me. <laughs> um, I, I think. Um, I think it, it, it didn't really hit me because, you know, I, I had I had the IV line in my arm. I, I had. I had blankets over me. I, I had you know I had. You know, I was supposed to, I was supposed to, it it was interesting because I, 
I'd never been in that type of situation before, and I was, I was, it, it, it didn't hit me how scary that situation was until the, the taxi drive home. Mm-hmm. Uh, what had happened was in the, I want to say two hours that I was at that party, I ended up drinking, I think, I believe I was told something like two, half to maybe two thirds of a handle of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, I had at least half a dozen, maybe, maybe even eight or nine beers. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was ridiculously drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily I'd been driven there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't do something stupid, like get behind the, the wheel of a car, um, and I just remember getting to my dorm, not having my wallet, and not being able to pay the, the cab driver, mm-hmm. and sitting outside my dorm at 4 a.m. trying to get in, um, and just sitting there outside in the cold November, <laughs> uh, the cold November wind, just thinking what happened last night what did you feel I felt empty honestly it's a very desolate feeling it was it was sort of a watershed moment in my life because I'd never I'd never felt that before I'd never felt it felt alien mm-hmm. I, I didn't I didn't feel like myself mm-hmm. I remember you know maybe I, I was waiting outside my my dorm for about an hour and a half most likely someone came by uh, and let me in Uh, a friend that recognized me and could tell that I had had a really rough night Um, I remember climbing up the three flights to my dorm room or and going into my room climbing up into my bed and falling asleep. Mm-hmm. I woke up maybe three hours later and realized I don't have my wallet. I don't have my phone. Mm-hmm. I don't have my keys. I don't have anything. So I asked my roommate to to call my ex-girlfriend to ask her what happened. And she said that she would be by to drop my things off. She came by, I grabbed my things from her, um, and she actually wouldn't look me in the eye. She just wanted to drive away as quickly as possible, which, of course, hurt as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I remember going back up to my apartment, getting on Facebook, and then having someone message me and ask if I was okay. Um, and I was, I said, no, I was, I was fine. I was in the hospital for a little bit, you know, but I'm, I'm okay now. I feel all right. Um, and then that person proceeded to tell me the events of that evening. I, of course, the, the volume of alcohol that I had drunk, but I had insulted so many people at that party. I had harangued my ex-girlfriend in front of, I want to say about 50 people. Um, I had thrown up 
in multiple places. It was a mess. It was a mess. It was, it was, it sounded like I was hearing about someone else. Yeah. It did not sound like the person I thought I was. Um, and then I remember calling my sister because, you know, whenever anything good happens to me, I always call my sister whenever anything bad happens. My sister's the first one I go to advice for, uh, advice to, and it hit me when I was, when I recant, when I, when I recalled my story, um, when I told her everything that happened and I heard the silence on the other hand, uh, on the other end, which was, which was new. And in that silence, I, I broke down. Mm-hmm. I wept. I, I lamented biblically. <laughs> it was bad. Um, yeah. because I finally understood Jesus Christ, this is this happened this happened to me I did this and it was it was horrifying Um, my sister made me promise her to never drink again and I will I will tell white lies to most people I might flake on a couple things when people tell me to to meet up with them whatever but my sister is one person that I don't lie to Mm mhm my sister is one person that I don't break my promises to, and I promised her that I wouldn't drink again. And that was the last time. And that was the last time. I've thought about it a lot since you know I've, I've thought about drinking a lot, but it's that promise to my sister. It's that that belief that I could be the person that she knows I am that has kept me from drinking again. From drinking again. What feeling should you? Uh, get from alcohol and what feeling should you not want to get from alcohol what is a good line to say this is probably a problem hmm well this is kind of a tough question and really it's what uh, it's what frankly it's what AA um, tries to answer as well mm-hmm. um, AA would argue that there is no good feeling from alcohol because every sensation that you get from alcohol um, and, and not necessarily alcohol like, oh, I just like to sip a fancy microbrew here in Austin. <laughs> it, al- alcohol in the sense of drinking for the purpose of getting drunk. That is that is an, an entirely false feeling. It's, yeah. it's artificial. Um, and that's, that's why any feeling you get from drinking alcohol for the sake of drinking alcohol is wrong. Um, I think as time has gone on, I, I've had a slightly different, uh, understanding, uh, of that relationship. I think, I think it is possible to have a, a healthy relationship with alcohol, but there are definitely personalities mm-hmm. that just aren't made for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm definitely one of those people that mm-hmm. just isn't made for alcohol. Okay. And I think um, anyone who has high expectations of themselves, anyone who has tremendous fear of letting others down, mm-hmm. anyone who lets um, lets things fester, mm-hmm. uh, should definitely try to stay away from alcohol because right. it becomes it becomes a solution. Right. Christopher Hitchens once said that it makes a good uh, servant, but an even better master. Absolutely. It, um, absolutely. It it shapes. I mean, I, I won't go as I won't say it goes as far as say heroin, of mm-hmm. course. Right. Um, but alcohol really does feel 
comforting and that's horrible mm-hmm. that's actually t- that's actually one of the worst feelings that it can give you right um decreasing your inhibitions you know uh allowing you to to you know that 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 feeling that buzz almost gives you um a a euphoria mm-hmm. almost right not like heroin again yeah but it's... you sound like you've done heroin my friend no 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 <laughs> um I've, I've i've read a lot about addiction and i feel like uh heroin is sort of the uh, if if you want to understand addiction heroin is a very good place to to start, to start. not doing yeah, yeah right. <laughs> not necessarily doing heroin just want to clarify um, um Yes, yeah, so Monmouthy does not uh, advocate uh, the use of any drug. For neither neither do I. Neither. No, no drugs. <laughs> no drugs, beta. <laughs> okay, so uh, so you stopped cold, and then you started living your life. Did you find anything to replace it? What did you make your new uh, addiction, or did you just did you quit alcohol, or did you quit addiction? I think I quit alcohol um, because the truth is I still have a very addictive personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I think after alcohol, it was relationships. Mm-hmm. I picked a lot of terrible people to date. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it, it, it came from, again, my, my, a, lo- a lot of my depression. My, my depression led to my alcoholism. And I think um, my alcoholism you know, was replaced by... by just anything, anything I could, I could, I could just shove inside that 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 black hole of, of a lack of an identity that I had mm-hmm. to to just make me feel normal, mm-hmm. um, full, to feel full, yeah, yeah. to feel satisfied yeah. um, in something, some aspect of my life, yeah. um, and so with with relationships, I thought, oh well, here's the acceptance that I've that I've sought. Mm-hmm. from other people I have value mm-hmm. problem is people change yeah. their values change right. and so when you have when you require stability in that sense mm-hmm. relationships in your early 20s early to really to your mid 20s just they're just not good for that right something I hear people say at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings is that uh, once you're an alcoholic you're always an alcoholic what does that mean? well um Part of your brain is always going to feel like alcohol is a solution. Mm-hmm. That's a struggle that someone is always going to have. Mm-hmm. It's and it's true. It's true because there are days where you're going to get frustrated and you're going to think, you know, if I just had, if I just had maybe maybe one beer, maybe I'd feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if I just poured just you know, like a shot, just mm-hmm. a quick shot, something just to ease my nerves, something right. like that. That's a constant struggle that I have. Yeah, you still face that. I do. I do. Um, and I think most people who have ever suffered from alcoholism um, still still do suffer from that. It, it is an everyday battle. I find that fascinating because uh, that tells me that people who are alcoholics that are in our midst and might not talk about it so much go through a whole lot because they uh, are constantly in situations that demand their reticence and demand their self-control uh, as people all around them are drinking or talking about drinking, or advertising drinking. You can't even go on the highway these days yeah. without seeing some kind of a, you know, deep eddy vodka advertisement in Austin. Um, so, in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, I feel like one of the most I, I've been to just uh, two of them, but I found that uh, one of the one of the biggest strengths 
of, the, of its constituents, and even you, I'm sure the listeners will agree, is that they're just so open about their issue. And in being open in that group, and in being open as you are with me and with our audience, you kind of um, beholden yourself to the promise you're making constantly. Yeah. Right. And, and really, it's. I, I guess the reason that we're so open is because alcohol, after a while, it becomes a dirty little secret mm-hmm. that we all have. And we hold it in and we hold it in and we hold it in. We don't, we don't ever talk about it. And I think finally being able to talk about it, being able to say, I have been weak. I, 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 this is what I'm going through. This is, this is what I've needed. This is what I need to replace. This is what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. It's remarkably cathartic. Um, and in regard to in regard to going out and hanging out with friends, it's true. As a as a as an alcoholic, it's remarkably difficult to to be in those situations. But the thing is, it's a test. You know, every, every single thing that we do is really a, a test, and that that obviously goes for any human being. For alcoholics, it would be really really easy for us to just stand up and go to the nearest pub or the nearest bar and just drink and drink and drink until we get thrown out. Um, So it's not like hanging out with friends or the advertising is uh, it's necessarily isolated um, to a certain time in a certain place. It's it's a 24 hour because the ad's going on in your head. Essentially. Right. Yeah. It's you could be drunk right now. Yeah. You could be having fun yeah. whatever forgetting whatever it is that gaping hole that you're talking about exactly yeah. and that's 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 what alcohol gives it's it's that forgetting forgetting that that hole that exists inside all of us that that need that clawing need that we have yeah um, so being faced with these situations allow, allows us to say that I'm not controlled by this clawing parasite yeah it allows us to say no I'm I'm going to be able to handle today. Yeah. I'm going to be able to handle going out with my friends while they drink. I'm going to be able to handle driving past that that bar that looks really tempting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a 24/7 job, <laughs> frankly. So I know that you attend these AA meetings sometimes, and so um, I also know that you're uh, spiritually kind of uh, very complicated. As yeah. an individual, but <laughs> that's a, that's a wonderful euphemism <laughs> for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a compliment, I think. So, uh, the thing about AA that's pretty well known is that it uses a lot of spiritual and religious um, uh, kind of ideas that help reinforce uh, that identity, that kind of the hole that you have. You fill it with AA. You fill it with the test with the uh, uh, testimony of people who've uh, benefited from that uh, those set of ideas. So, how do you reconcile? your spiritual kind of uh, experimentation with their spiritual uh, kind of decisiveness. Honestly, this was probably the hardest part um, of going to AA was not feeling like a fraud every single time that I went, went in there Mm -hmm. because I've, you know, I've, I've struggled with faith for really since I was a, since, since my depression started. Yeah. Um, So the founders of AA had this theory that, Alcohol is remarkably addictive, and our brain becomes wired to want that to 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 want that release that alcohol gives us. It becomes quote unquote a higher power. 
And so the only way to defeat one higher power is to replace it with another higher power. Right, Loki versus Thor. Exactly. Something right. so all-encompassing yeah. that it it remains your rock. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most addicting things on the planet, certainly, is the the joy of religion. Yeah. The joy of a... Um, of faith, the joy of, of having the sense of community mm-hmm. that comes from faith, right. um, the joy of ha- being certain mm-hmm. about something. Yeah, I may have a whole bunch of doubts about myself, but I know this is real. That's what AA can potentially give some people. Now, for me, uh, I don't necessarily have a higher power to replace alcohol with, mm-hmm. and so I've had to rely I've had to rely on the belief that my sister had, that I am a better person, that Mm. I can be a better person, that I can be the person that she knows I am. Right. And it's more the drive from that that's kept me sober. That's been my higher power. Right. That belief. Someone else's faith, in, in effect. Exactly. And not, not to be narcissistic in, in saying that <laughs> I am my own highest power, I, I am my own greater power, but it's true. You have to, you have to decide for yourself. Right. And you have to decide for yourself what that higher power is going to be, and it just it worked for me. Right. It's like Matthew McConaughey said in his Oscar acceptance speech. He said that the person he looks up to is him in 10 years. Yeah. Right. Something like that. Um, on a different episode we're going to have to do his impressions he knows so many Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you is kind of in relation to that actually is who uh, if if anyone do you look up to who has gone through this journey like uh, whether it's going from drinking to not drinking or, or alcoholism to being sober and done it in a way that you find charming or inspiring who do you look up to you know, it's it's interesting because it, it would be very very easy for me to say that there's a celebrity mm-hmm. that's gone through a battle with alcoholism. There's been a celebrity that's gone through their battle with depression. Granted, Stephen Fry's journey's been very inspiring. True, right? Yeah. Um, with with alcohol, though, it's been far more personal. Mm-hmm. Um, in that. It was the members at AA that mm-hmm. I look up to. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going back in undergrad. There was a Methodist church just across the street, mm-hmm. and I went to that AA um, as often as I could. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I remember seeing so many people that had gotten through the worst, the worst part of their life mm-hmm. just by getting that sense of community. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I know I struggle with the with the religious aspect of of AA, and I know I struggle with some of the some of the concepts and some of the tenets that they may have. But the one thing that I just can't deny is that it gave me that sense of community, and I feel like that is the most crucial part of recovering from any type of addiction is to not feel alone. That's why I look up to the people that I was that I was around in College Station, and now here in in Austin. So, that's 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 the group that I'd say the yeah. people that I that I went to AA with for two years. Wow. 
what would you say to someone who you who might be listening to this and think that sounds like me what, what, what should they do honestly if if you're at the point where you can say this is me well you've already done 90 percent of the work frankly mm-hmm. just being able to admit that you've got a problem mm-hmm. with one the thing that you're doing and two the reason you're doing it mm-hmm. uh, it's you're already much farther along than most people. The difficulty, again, with with addiction is you don't know you're addicted mm-hmm. until someone tells you are tells you that you are. Mm-hmm. And so, for the person that that hears this and thinks that sounds like me, find that community. You know, you don't need the alcohol. You don't need whatever drug or whatever relationship or whatever. Whatever thing you're trying to cram inside yourself to make you feel whole, you don't need that. You can find that in yourself. You can find that in the healthy community that you build around you. Mm -hmm. So, get out there. Find that community. Find that better you. Find that you that my sister believes you could be. (laughs) Yeah, that's perfect. Um, And on that note, I want to thank our community the listeners of One Mukti, uh, for listening and tuning in. Uh, and I want to thank my guest, uh, who has been very brave in telling a story. Uh, and I hope, and we hope, that you got as much out of it as, uh, as uh, we did. I want to extend a thank you to our guest, to our team, Buddy, Ashley, Shema, and Epi, and to you, our listeners. It's because of you that we tell these stories, and it's your stories that we're telling. So if you have a story, or know someone who does, speak up at munmukti.org. My name is Anand. See you next time. <laughs>